The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Uh, if, uh, in case you don't know, we've been working through the book of Mark. <laughs> 16 Sundays between the beginning of the year and Easter. And so we've been de- taking... Uh, one chapter a week, the 16 chapters in the book of Mark, uh, the title of the series is called A Man Worth Following. So the idea, the concept behind it is that uh, we all are somehow, for some reason, we're looking for somebody who's worth following, looking for strength, we're looking for love, we're looking for guidance from somebody, from something, we're looking around and, you know, we, we may put our trust in politicians, we may put our trust in, uh, you know, Religious leaders, we put our trust in uh, a wife or a husband, or uh, maybe we have a particular musical idol or film idol or so, some sports team, sports star, something. We all look for somebody to model our lives after, somebody who can tell us, like, hey, this is what life is supposed to look like. Follow me, and life will be good. And so we pattern ourselves after the people that we admire. And the problem is that you, you can only take that so far before the person is going to, you know, not live up to expectations that you have or your hopes that you have. That every political leader has some frailty, some frailty, some fault, something at the end that you get to the end. You're like, ah, it's nuts. It didn't quite pan out like I hoped it would. Some sports team, sports star, whatever it is, your cause that might be your deal. It's everything always just kind of ends at a kind of a cul-de-sac, really. And only Jesus has been a man who's worth following. He's a, he's a man you can follow. He's a king you can serve. And he's a God you can worship. As we Hopefully as we've been rolling through the past 12 weeks, we're going to be in chapter 13 today. As we've been doing that, we've been able to see a better picture, maybe a clearer picture of who he was and what he was like. We've talked oftentimes about how sometimes our, our picture of Jesus has been more framed by pop culture or maybe even bad church teaching than actually what is shown to us in the scripture. Like picture of Jesus is like a Thomas Kincaid picture with, you know, a, a lamb around his neck. And he's got kind of a creepy smile and a, a weird goofy look all the time, like a faraway look. And he just kind of floats around like this and he's doesn't really see what's going on or notice what's going on. He's just kind of ethereal, kind of out there. It's kind of difficult for me to relate to, but Jesus would have been a man. He would have been a man who would have had calloused hands. He would have had dirt under his nails. He would have had a he, he would have been. He would have known hard work. He was a, a poor Hebrew uh, carpenter, so he would have known what it was like to have very little and to get by with very little, and for life to be rough. He knew what it was like to be for times to be difficult. You know what? Jesus knew what it was like to get the burps. You know, like when you eat something and, you, and it, it doesn't quite agree with you, and it, it comes up and it's, it doesn't taste good to you, and it doesn't not real pleasant to the people around you. Uh, Jesus, that Jesus would have known what that was like. Jesus knew what it was like to have to go to the bathroom. You know, sometimes we, we we clean up the picture of Jesus, but he was a very real guy, and yet in that reality, in that humanity, he was somebody who transcended, somebody who was absolutely worth following. And so we have turned the corner here the past few weeks. We've seen Jesus. He's heading. He's kind of got the end goal in mind. He's been telling the people around and his followers, hey, I didn't come in order to set up a throne here in order to be king. I came in order to sacrifice my life for you guys. And the next three weeks, 14, 15, and 16, are really going to concentrate on that as we head into Easter. It's going to be 
Um, I would say it's going to be fun, but let's be honest. The what you call the Easter story or the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is not very pleasant. I don't know how many people have seen uh, the Passion of the Christ. If you've been a Christian for over, you know, five years, I think it's by law you have to have seen that movie. It's a very painful movie to watch. Uh, the, when you hear stories about what was involved in the death and the suffering of Jesus, it's not fun to watch. I, I'll be honest with you, I've only watched The Passion of the Christ once. It's very painful. It's very hard. It's very gritty to watch. But So the story of Easter, sometimes we, we clean it up and we think it's all fun, but it was a story of suffering, a story of pain. And we're going to see, hopefully we'll appreciate, not, for, not gratuitously, but hopefully we'll appreciate over the coming weeks what Jesus went through in order to, to graft you and me, if you're a believer in Christ today, to graft us into his family. So um, the, the chapter that we're going to be in today is uh, an interesting chapter. I'm probably not going to please... Uh, probably anybody in the room today because uh, because this is a chapter that's talking about the, the last days, the end times, the return of Jesus. Before Jesus is going to go, uh, he's, before he's, he's heading off to his death, burial, and resurrection, before that he's telling the uh, disciples around him, hey, not only am I going to leave, but I'm going to come back. I came once, and I'm going to return again. And the the problem with this, whenever you get to this topic, is uh, when I used to be a, a youth a youth leader, my uh, if we ever asked the teenagers, "Hey, what should we study?" Which actually is a very stupid thing to ask teenagers to say, "Hey, what should we study?" Uh, they're always going to return two answers. They're going to say sex. The end times or sex in the end times. That's the third option, but it's always going to have to do with that. Sex, the end times, or sex in the end times. And uh, both of those are very sticky subjects. No, that was a very bad, bad pun. Both of those are very, very difficult subjects to go over with a group of teenagers. And I always hated whenever somebody would ask them because that's always what they're always going to come back with. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what your background is like in church, um, whether you come from a, a church background or not or uh, what kind of church it was. Uh, but when I say, like, end times, are there certain pictures that pop up in your head? Um, so for me, some of that would be, uh, like, really, 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 really poorly done Christian, like, not even a B movie. We'll say it's like a, a P movie. It's way down. That's, that's another unfortunate. We'll say, let's say it's an L movie. It's way down on the, the list. It was very, very poorly done, poorly acted, very see-through skit and a script. And all it was about, it was to scare the teenagers and the kids and probably, you know, any any adult that just catch them just right on this, maybe the room is dark, to scare them into, into thinking about how Jesus is coming back. Have you guys ever seen any of those movies? Maybe you didn't grow up in a church background like I did, where, you know, it, it would be horrible. It, it sort of reminds me a little bit. One time, we had some friends that invited my family to a church in Andrews, South Carolina. Anybody ever been to Andrews, South Carolina? It's an interesting place. Uh, they're invited to a church service, an evening, a special service in a church in Andrews, South Carolina. And we got there, and this tiny little block building church was 
packed. Our, our friends that invited us, I, I don't remember where they were. I, I, don't, I don't remember where they were. But we walk up to the door, and uh, the ushers tell us that uh, the whole room is full. And so, but here we have some special seating for you. And so they escort us past all the pews down the middle aisle. You know the old little country church with the pews and the, you know, it's usually like that uh, the, the ugly like puke green carpet down the middle. And he led us up the middle, up to the front. And I think, oh no, we're going to sit in the front. But no, the front was full. They took us up onto the stage or they had pulled up seating on the stage on the side, like watching sideways. So we are sitting right at the front. The only exit to the room is back there at the information table. We're looking at the show like this. Everybody in the group is watching us. We're visitors, so already they're assuming like, like, we don't know Jesus. We're just lost. We stumbled in there because lost people love to stumble into a country church on a Sunday night to a special service. And we're sitting there in, in the chair, and the show starts. And the show, there was a right here, there was a big, like, gate that they had put in. And it was the gate of what? The gate of heaven. You can see where this is going. And so the whole story was you have, uh, I don't remember if it was Jesus or Peter or angels at the gate. And they would bring people inside down the aisle who's like are ready to go into heaven. And then like the angel or whoever it was would tell them, no, you're not getting in. And would call the demons to come in and would drag them down the aisle screaming, no, no, no. So they're just working the crowd up, 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 up more and more. And I'm like, mom and dad, where have you brought me? But there's no way out. They're using the middle aisle. We're up at the very front. We had to go through the whole thing. And then at the very end, when they worked the crowd to the fever pitch of fear, like a, a demon may grab me on the way out here and drag me to hell. While, while you, they work you up to that, then they have the altar call. Where they have the music and they call you to come forward. And when not enough people come forward, then they call you again. And when not enough people come forward, then they say, you should turn to your neighbor now and say, you need to come with me to the front. And then when that didn't bring enough people, then the, pe- the actors from the skit went out into the crowd and one by one looked at every single person in the, the pew and said, you need to come with me up front. So I don't know what kind of church background you have, but that's kind of what I think about when I think about the end of the age. Um, some of this is kind of freaky. Some of this is something that we've never, ever thought about before, but... And then for us, there's some people, maybe in this room, there's some people that it's sort of like a, a pet subject for you. You love to talk about, it's a, the theological term is eschatology, the study of last things. You just love to talk about it. It's your hot button subject. And if it's your deal, look, I'm not knocking today. I'm just saying I'm probably not going to please you today because there's different views in this room about what goes down at, between now and then. But I personally, well, hopefully, will see that though I may not please you with our explanation of what I think this passage is about, I hopefully will kind of look, be able to look through the weeds a little bit and get to the point of the passage. So if you have your Bible, all that said, my disclaimer, my long disclaimer, and my story of my terrifying trip to the church in Andrews. You have your Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 13. Uh, we're going to start in verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to jump to the end. Um, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, so, 
what we've seen the past few weeks is, is Jesus is really coming in, as he has come into Jerusalem, he's come in contact with the temple. And the temple was an amazing, beautiful place. This was Herod's temple, and it was still under construction. In fact, at this point, it would have, it would have been under construction for 50 years. It was a beautiful, amazing place. It was a wonder of the world. I told you guys before that, that it encompassed 35 acres. It was huge. The, some of the stones that they had used, they estimate would have been, in fact, there's still some there now, would have, would have weighed a million pounds, one stone. Um, uh, yes, a million a million, I have no idea how they did that. A million, I read this in a book or I wouldn't believe it otherwise. It said a million pounds. A million pounds. That's huge. This is a humongous, they have this giant, they have this giant retaining wall where the average stone weighed 100,000 pounds. They had, it was, the front was gilded with gold so it would have glinted in the sunlight. It was a beautiful, amazing edifice. It was the center of Jewish thought. It was the center of Jewish, the Jewish heart. It was the center of the Jewish identity, both nationally and individually, because of what the temple represented. The temple represented that God, the one and only true God, had chosen the Jews to be his chosen people, and inside the temple is where his presence dwelt. So that set them apart from everybody else. So no matter what was going on in the nation of Israel, whether they were flourishing and rich, whether they were under their own rule or they were under somebody else's rule, their identity, their, their sense of importance was wrapped up in the, in the sense that we have the one and only true God who has chosen us as his people and he dwells here in our midst, here in the temple. So Jesus come into this temple and you, you, we heard a couple weeks ago and then exactly like what he saw when he walked in and they're like ATM machines all over the place and there's they're selling there's auctions selling off animals and you know they're money changing and all kinds of stuff going on and he somehow in this huge area he cleared the whole area and said you've turned what God my father intended for a house of prayer into a den of robbers and he and he, so anyway, the past couple of weeks have had some interactions with the temple. And now, very kind of symbolically, verse 1 of chapter 13, as he, as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Which, by the way, is a fair statement. If you have a wonder of the world that you're walking beside, that is a part of your national identity as a Hebrew, as a Jew, and, and it is huge. You have the average stone in the retaining walls, 100,000 pounds. It, it's huge. It's glinting. There's gold. It's amazing. Like, it's worth, it's worth kind of wondering at. Has anybody here ever been to the Biltmore House? I heard, like, Biltmore House, yeah, yeah, whatever, until Megan and I went uh, last year, the year before last. And, and you come up to it, and you're like, Wow. That's impressive. Like, I know it's the biggest house in America, but you get closer and closer, you're like, wow, that's amazing. I remember as a kid, like, I had heard stories and, and seen on TV or movies, whatever, of pictures of, of Disney World. I remember the first time I walked through the gates of Disney World on Main Street, and you're like, whoa. It's, it's, you see something amazing, you wonder at it. It's a fair, it's a fair thing that the, the disciple does. Look, teacher. What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? 
there'll not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So if you're thinking about stones of 100,000 pounds, some of them, a stone of a million pounds, and he's saying not one is going to be left one top of the other, that's a pretty, that's a pretty, that's a pretty amazing statement. And why, what does he say? Can you imagine as a Jew hearing that? Your, your identity, both personal and national, is wrapped up into the temple, that that's where God lives and he's selected you as his special people? What Jesus is saying is, look, the reason I've come is because the Father's presence has been trapped, as it were, inside the temple. And I've come, you guys, if you maybe have cheated ahead, you know the story, whenever he, whenever he dies, what happens to the, the great big veil between, the, it's torn, the torn how? From the top to the bottom, symbolizing what? God's presence is with his people now. He's saying, your identity, my presence is no longer going to be wrapped up and trapped in the temple. It's going to, I am, this is going to be abolished. And in fact, less than 40 years later, in 70 AD, the whole place would be raised, the whole place would be destroyed and cast down. And he said, the reason of this is because I have come to replace the temple, I have come so that my presence may dwell in you and among you and no longer be trapped inside the temple. And then, and then this chapter takes a hard left turn. And it is probably one of the most difficult chapters, uh, certainly in Mark, to interpret. Um, some of you will say, no, it's very easy. But no, actually, it is a very difficult passage to actually make sense of. And the reason that two or three of you think you know exactly how it's supposed to be translated is evidence that it's not very easy to translate. And it gets very complicated. It, it talks about wars and rumors of wars and don't be alarmed and nation against nation. And then you know, all kinds of like vague things it talks about. And it gets very apocalyptic sounding language. I'll just read this one section to you guys. Uh, but when, verse 14, but when you, it's not on the screen, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Do you guys understand? Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant for, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such a tribulation as had not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. You guys can understand how maybe you didn't grow up in church, but how like some people freak out when you start talking about the end times and Jesus returning. Like it's kind of hard to sometimes to interpret this language. I, I have some thoughts on this, but here's the important thing. Follow me with me to verse 32. So there's lots of lots of interesting to some of us, it may be scary-sounding things. We're, we're scared to really think about the return of Jesus in the end of the days because we picture those bad L movies or those, um, or though maybe you've been to a kind of play that I went to, or maybe somebody scared you at one point. Maybe there was you grew up in a church where there was really hard altar calls, or people were beating you over the head all the time about He's coming back and what are you going to be doing? Are you going to be in sin? Or 
But look at verse 32. This is Jesus talking again. But concerning that day, so he's talking about the day that he is coming back, the end of the days. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work. And he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Here's the deal. All of us, about whatever subject, we want to know who, what, when, where, why, and how. Uh, it could be about a, sub, a local news subject, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Elvis disappearance. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys were pouring over uh, here around the water cooler at work. Everybody's talking. They were talk, talking back and forth, chattering on Facebook about the newest development. Oh, that wasn't really a development. We want to know what's going on. We want to know the whole story. It could be about your favorite celebrity. It could be about your favorite sports team. It could be about the end times. We want to know the whole story. We want to know who. We want to know what. We want to know where. We want to know when. We want to know why. And we want to know how. And Jesus tells us here a couple of things. He says, first of all, there's three things that you have to know. Then he says, there's one thing that you don't have to know. And then he says, there's one thing that you cannot know. There's three things that you have to know. So we're talking about the end times. I don't know what you're, and Jesus coming back and the end of the days. I don't know what your thoughts are. Maybe you think about it a lot. Maybe you don't think about it. Maybe you're scared by it. So you don't want to even talk about it or think about it. Or maybe like you're just like, you know exactly. You got the timeline up in your, in your basement. You know, you got the whole deal out. You got your bunker lined up. You know how everything lines up. You got your fancy chart or maybe you have everything on a piece of paper. You got it all figured out. Whatever you fall in the whole deal. He says there's three things that you have to know. There's one thing that you don't have to know. And there's one thing that we cannot know. And the one thing that we cannot know is we cannot know when. Through this whole description, this whole chapter, he, it, he tells all kinds of stuff that's going to happen. He prophesying, he's saying this, this stuff is going to come, it's going to happen. But when he gets to 32, he's telling us the whole purpose of what he's been telling, why he's been telling us the whole chapter. You can read it on your own and talk amongst yourselves. You can talk to me, you can talk to whoever, but you can look it up on Google, probably not the best source, but you can do it. You're going to know you're going to do it anyway. You can Wikipedia it, probably not a good source as well, but you can try it. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, he's talking about himself, but only the Father. He says it again, after he says, be on guard, keep awake, he says, for you do not know when the time will come. 
Verse, verse 35, therefore stay awake for you do not know when the master of the house will come. If, if you think you have it figured out or if you hear anybody saying, hey, I've got it all figured out, like Russia's going to invade Germany or Russia's going to invade Israel. And this, see, this is happening right now and this is what's going on. Like this is exactly what's going to happen. And so we know what the timeline is going to be. The European Union organized here and there's 13 countries and that corresponds to the 13 people here and here. And you see it all mixed together. If they, they think they have it all figured out. They can tell you when it's happened. They do not know. You can already discount that person because we cannot know. The whole reason he's telling us that he's coming back is to tell us that we don't know when it will happen. He tells us something that we don't have to know and that's how. You don't have to know exactly how it's going to work out. You may think you have it figured out, and that's fine. It's a subject, it's a great subject for study, it's a great subject to think about, it's a great subject to talk about. But you and I don't have to know how he's coming back. There are three important things that we have to know. We have to know who is coming back. We have to know what is happening, that he is returning to the creation that he made to set things right. And we have to know why. Because he came once as a lowly babe. He came once as a humble servant. And he's coming again as the ruler and king of all creation and all to eternity. To take the universe, to take the, his creation that has fallen. That has been separated from his presence. And to reunite us to him. If you know the story of Adam and Eve at the very beginning in the garden. It says they were walking and talking with with God. They were communing with him. They would take a walk with him in the cool of the day. Wouldn't that be cool? Like to have a, a buddy who, like your buddy shows up to take a walk with you and it's, it's like God. Wouldn't that be, that's a pretty cool guy to hang out with. I mean, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what you talk about. I imagine the subjects would be fascinating. I love meeting people who have been to cool places and done things I've never done before. Imagine talking to the one who created the whole thing. You guys seen like this, these pictures circulating on, on uh, on Facebook, it's from another site of like pictures, it's like a whatever, like 25 places in the world that you can't believe exists. It's like crazy looking places, like caves and um, uh, amazing like rock formations and things that you like, you look at, you can't believe it's real. It's like somebody drew it, like this is a real place in the world. Like God created each one of those. You can walk and talk with him and he's telling you about all these things he created. I don't know what they talked about. But whenever they sinned, they were, this, they were separated from God. In fact, actually physically, they were removed from the garden. They said like angels with like, these flashing swords and whatnot at the entry to the garden. They were removed from that presence of, of God. And all of creation just never quite worked the same again. The curse, he said to Adam, hey, you're going to have to, you're going to work the fields. It's going to be by the sweat of your brow. You're going to be this creation that you came out of and were a part of. You're going to be fighting with it now. And the woman who your, your crown, your glory is to, is to, pro, is to give life, to, to carry life and to give birth to life, that that's now going to be done in the midst of, of pain. It's going to be difficult for you. They're removed from God's presence. All of creation breaks down. It doesn't quite work the same. And now at the very end, he's coming back there's no temple to hold his presence. He's coming out. In fact, it says that he's coming. It doesn't say that he's coming through the clouds. It says he's coming with the clouds. 
You know what the significance of that is? When you look at the Old Testament, the clouds represented the glory and the presence of God. The, the Hebrew word is the Shekinah. I'm not pronouncing it right. I know that. But this is the Shekinah, Shekinah or whatever, the correct way to pronounce it. That, he, that he, he's coming back with... with with his, and his glory is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. It's going to be everywhere. It's not going to be trapped inside a building. It's going to be everywhere. And he's going to set things right the way it was originally intended to be, except even better because he's more glorified now in the way that, in the way that he has affected salvation for us. Why is he coming He's coming to reunite and to remake creation, to unite heaven and earth, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and he will be the king over it all. And so no matter what you believe about what happens between now and then, what we all believe as Christians, what we all should believe is that he, Jesus Christ, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, is coming back. We should believe what is he doing, that he is coming Back. He's physically coming back. He was here. He left and he's coming back physically. And third, we know that he's coming to make all things new and to set all things right. And the reason that you and I maybe are kind of scared about it or don't want to think about it and don't want to talk about it is because something isn't clicking about the who that's coming back. And something's not clicking about why he's coming back. I remember whenever I was younger, like a teenager, and everybody's talking about Jesus coming back, and I just kept praying, like, I hope it doesn't happen. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I was a teenage boy, and so I was saying, God, I hope you don't come back until I get married and have sex. Just let me get past that line, because that was the one that I just really, like, I just really wanted to experience. Like, I, let me cross that line, because I just had this picture of, like, Jesus coming back, like, life ends, and, like, we're, like, harps, you know, and the wings, and there's clouds everywhere. I don't know what kind of picture you have. There's like rainbows, and for some reason, doves are floating around everywhere, and everybody's like an endless music service. I don't know, they're always talking about there's music, which is true. Every time we look in heaven, we see there's singing and rejoicing going on, but you know, sometimes, I'll be honest, like I come in church on Sunday morning, and second or third song, I'm like, I I'm ready to sit down now. Like, some days I'm like good, and some days I'm just tired. I'm ready to like mail it in and sit down. I'm thinking endless eternity of, of singing songs, like I would probably get tired of that. I don't remember where I started. Oh, yeah, that's where I remember. Why is he coming back? The reason that I didn't care, that I wasn't excited about it, was because I didn't know why he was coming back, and my heart wasn't stirred for the who. You ever had somebody that you really, really loved that goes out of town? You ever had like a, you, 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 like your, your spouse, you've been married for a while, and they take that first long trip away from you? It might be a weekend or it might be a week. And, and you're just like, like things just don't quite function right until they get back. Like maybe husbands, maybe you can track with them. Like the wife goes on somewhere and you're either by yourself or you got the kids. And like the, the house doesn't quite function right. Like the, the things don't quite smell. Like walk in the bathroom, it doesn't quite smell like it does when she's around. Uh, probably for the worse. Uh, you know, some of us are neat freaks, but still things don't quite work like the way it's supposed to be. Like you lay in bed and you're used to having somebody there. It just feels weird whether you're a snuggler or not. You just like feels weird them not being there with you. It's just not quite right until they come back. And the longer they're gone, the longer you, the more and more you long for them to return because you miss them. And maybe if our hearts aren't stirred, if 
we're not thinking about and anticipating and looking forward. Because what did he say to be? He said to stay awake, be alert, be watching for him to return. And maybe if you and I aren't staying awake, maybe if you and I aren't being alert, maybe if you and I aren't being watchful, it's because our hearts aren't really stirred by him. And it doesn't really make any real difference to you or not whether he's around or not. Because when your loved one is gone, things don't quite work right. He's here, but he's not here like he's going to be when he comes to set all things right and make all things new. And you long for it. You long for it. And maybe if you don't look, if you're not looking forward to it, maybe it's because you don't really understand why he's coming. Maybe you think like, like, like I did as a teenager, like he's going to come and he's going to like my life is going to end and it's going to be harps and singing and that doesn't sound very exciting to me. I'm not a musician. I was the only guy in my youth group that didn't play uh, an instrument, particularly the guitar or surf. I was the only dude in my youth group that didn't play guitar or surf. That didn't sound very exciting to me, an endless worship service. But if you think about tomorrow morning when you wake up, maybe when you woke up this morning, were there aches and pains? Maybe sometime over the past week or two weeks or year, have you dealt with tragedy and loss? Have you had relationships that haven't quite worked out like they're supposed to? Or have you had relationships that have been severed? Have you had loved ones that have died and have passed on? And you think, like, this isn't the way this is supposed to be. When I was 18, I popped out of bed. Everything's cool. I'm, I'm 36 now and not every morning I get up, it's not quite as easy as it used to be, and I don't have any promise that things are getting better. I used to work out, like didn't have to stretch, just run around and play football or do whatever, and now if I did that, like for a moment, I would, like, I would pull a calf muscle, I'd, I'd, I'd pull my groin, you know, it, was, was, it doesn't work like it used to work anymore, and we know that that's not the way it's supposed to be, and Jesus Christ is coming back to make a new heaven new earth to set all things right to make all things new again I don't know um, this now it's kind of a bummer to me this is now a dated analogy but um, some of you guys maybe you've seen it on ESPN Classic or something or you've heard stories but um, I was a Bulls fan in the 90s a Chicago Bulls fan sports analogy guys hang on so I was a Chicago Bulls fan in the 90s. And just like all the other posers, I was a Chicago Bulls fan only for one reason. You guys tell me why? Jordan. Michael Jordan, number 23. He was the man. He was the man, the greatest basketball player of all time. Wilt, Wilt Watt, I don't care. I'm a big LeBron fan still. Jordan, best basketball player of all time. It was amazing to watch. I've never seen anything quite like watching Michael Jordan in his prime. Anybody see him ever on TV or in live in his prime? There was, there was nothing like that, particularly as a Poser Bulls fan who was pulling for him and Pippen and all those guys and Robin with the hair. And, and I remember watching like the playoff games in, in particular, and, and it would be like Jordan would have an off night. He just cannot, he cannot drain the jumper. He cannot, he, he can't get to the basket. He, he can't drain the jumper. He can't get anything to work. But yet, and so he would struggle for a half, three quarters, and it gets you kind of nervous. You're like, they're down 10 points, they're down 12 points. But you, but you knew what? What did you know if you watched the game? You knew somehow Jordan's going to figure it out. 
Somehow he's going to figure it out. And he always did. Uh, I was remembering, Dale and I were talking about it yesterday, uh, game six of the 97 finals versus the Utah Jazz. Uh, Game six, I, I still remember, I don't remember where I was, but I, I can, it's still blazed in my, in my memory. Jordan, he takes, he drives in to the, to the left, Stockton, Stockton, John Stockton comes over, he, there's a, stick with me, there's a purpose behind this. Stockton, he draws, it might have been triple, double or tri, at least a double team, maybe a triple team. Stockton pulls over to him, Jordan fakes like he's going to go up to shoot, and he throws the ball out to Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr drains the 15-footer, 5.6 seconds, I believe, left in the game. They win the championship, his fifth championship. The next year, this is like the iconic Michael Jordan moment. It's game six again, I believe, uh, versus the Utah Jazz, um, 98 finals. Jordan, you guys remember the picture? He nails the jumper. There's six seconds left. I think six, six, something, six something seconds left. Right in, the, right in the basket, they win the game. Over and over again, they do that. You guys remember the flu game? The flu game. He had the flu. He had the flu. I don't know if you didn't know. Michael Jordan, if you didn't know, Michael Jordan had the flu. He could barely move. He was throwing up before the game. He comes on the court, scored 40-something points that night. Wins the game versus the Knicks, I believe. Wins the game. It was, you just knew in that moment. They could be down 10. It could be the last quarter. It could be the last minute. You knew somehow. Somehow Jordan is going to figure out a way to win this game. What would it be like? Well, we know what it was like. What would it be like to be one of his teammates in those 90s Bulls teams? If you knew Jordan was that good, and you knew he's clutch, you knew he's going to, if we're close, he's going to, if we can just, he's going to win the game, what would it be like to be one of his teammates? Would you, like, be lazy? Or would you work harder? Well, we know what happened. The Bulls' practices were legendary for being intense because they didn't want to let Jordan down because if you let Jordan down, he's going to get in your face and probably be inappropriate. So at this point, the analogy breaks down, but you didn't want to let, you, you didn't want to let him down. And in the game, you're going to work hard at whatever your job is. Dennis Rodman was mostly played defense and got, got rebounds. Steve Kerr was a specialist out, outside the arc or from long-range jumpers. Does that mean anything to some of you guys? Not basketball, but lost you yet? He he was a, shooting the ball from long away. He was an expert at that. That was, that was almost all that he did. But each person they worked hard to get open. They worked hard to play. They worked hard to practice because they know if we do that, Jordan's going to win the game. That game, the reason that the first the, the game six in the '97 finals when he, they beat the Jazz, the reason. That, stop, that, that Kerr was wide open 15 feet away from the basket was because everybody thought Jordan was going to take the shot. So when he, he, he drove, in fact, um, he was supposed to take a shot. He drove in, the double team rolls over to him, he sees, sees Kerr wide open 15 feet away, tossing the ball. What did Kerr have to do at that point? He knew, I have, if Jordan's not taking the final shot, I have to take the shot you knew that if Jordan passed you the ball, it was your opportunity. If you, had to, if you could fight to get that rebound, you got to get the rebound because we got to get the ball to Michael on the other end. 
if you were a, a teammate of Michael and you knew he had it, he was clutch, you would work harder. You'd be alert. You'd stay awake. Because if you ever, he ever passed you the ball and you weren't paying attention, you might never get that shot again. What should our thoughts, what should our attention, what should our focus be like if we know that Jesus is coming back? Because just as assuredly as he came one time, he's coming again. Just as assuredly as he died to pay the penalty for us on the cross that we justly deserve, he is coming back again. How should that affect the way that we think about life? If you and I were certain that Jesus was coming back, how would that affect our hearts, our attitudes, our actions? How would that affect the way we interact with our families and our careers? How should the knowledge that Jesus is coming back and he's coming back to make all things new inform our present, the way, that we, the way that we conduct ourselves, the way we conduct our lives? Well, the way it should inform all that, the way it should change us, it should cause us to be alert, it should cause us to stay awake, it should cause us to be watchful. It should cause us to long for it. If we know that this world is broken, if you love Jesus Christ, then we long for his return. The how might be confusing. The when we'll never know. But the who, the what, and the why should inform our everyday lives. Be alert and be watchful. Live life in such a way that we know that the king is returning and he's going to make all things new. And because of that, we work hard at the little job that he's given us. It could be your job at work. It could be your job at home. It could be your part in the community of faith. You work hard at the job that he's given you. Because you know he's coming back. And he's clutch. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.